We're going to, uh, I'm going to, well, I should say, I'm going to read from 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 11, and you can follow along with me in your copy of the Scripture, 1 John 2, verses 3 through 11. If you don't have a Bible of your own, you can grab one of the Bibles out of the, uh, one of the chairs around you. There's a rack underneath the chairs, and they have a Bible. You're welcome to keep that Bible for your own. If you're going to use that Bible to read along with us, that 1 John chapter 2 is found on page 1021. And um, we're going to read verses 3 through 11, and then after that, have a moment of prayer before our message this morning. 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word in him Truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is, true in Him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. May God bless the reading of His Word here this morning. Will you join me as we pray? God, we want to give you thanks for this time of worship this morning where we can gather together and acknowledge together that we need Jesus. We have not stopped needing you from the day of our birth to the day that we put our faith in you for salvation to this moment even now. Our every breath and our future hope is sealed and held by you. We thank you, God, that you have called us together as a body of believers that we may worship you together and together, Lord, to trust you more, to walk more in your ways and to become more like Christ together. You have not called us to a life of isolation, but a life of community. And we thank you for the many opportunities, especially this morning, for the women to be involved in being discipled and formed into the image of Christ, we especially pray for those women at uh, Women's Retreat this morning that you might bless their time and they may be strengthened and encouraged in their walk with Christ. We thank you for the other churches in the valley, and this morning in particular, we remember Westminster Presbyterian. We pray for Pastor Barnabas and ask your hand on him as he proclaims the gospel this morning. May uh, the gospel be effective in seeing lives changed for Christ this morning at Westminster. We continue to lift up Tim and Mary Dady as they uh, look forward to welcoming the team here from Medford next week. We ask God that you would provide for other needs, a car and a place to live while they visit uh, home in a few months. And also ask God for effectiveness in the ministry of the gospel this coming week with the team from our church. God, we pray for Russell Hudson's family as he has gone home to be with you. We thank you, God, for his uh, profession of faith in Christ, and so he now is in your presence, and ask God for your comfort and grace on his family in his passing. And we thank you as well for the testimony of Janet and John Pierce with the passing of Jean Prudhomme, and ask God for your help and hand on their lives as they mourn her home going, but we're thankful, Lord, she is in your presence. God, we ask for your hand of healing on Jordan Pond and as well on Michelle Seeley that you would help the issues that they have in their life. God, we pray for Don and Ted and Marianne and Russ and Lily and Travis and ask God that you might move in their life this week, that they would come to know Christ as Savior. God, as we look at your word for a few minutes, we pray that you would change us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're continuing in 1 John, we're in 
Chapter 2, we're going through verses 3 through 11. If you want to have your finger in there, we're going to be in that passage along with many others this morning because I like to keep you busy flipping in your Bibles, scrolling on your devices. As I mentioned, the prayer Russell Hudson went home to be with the Lord, um, and he'll have a service uh, for him at uh, the Eagle Point um, Cemetery. I think it's Thursday at 10 for the family. Um, but you can be praying for his family as well. Find First John chapter two. I have a joke about First John. I don't know. Should I say it? Yes. See, somebody. See, okay, yeah. That's because you want to see me get in trouble. Some people, because we, I've been giving the verse numbers because our hope is that there might be people, or not verse numbers, the page numbers. Uh, when we're doing the reading, our hope is that our church would have people in who have no idea where First John is. As it turns out, it's hard to find. Some of you, I'm hoping. Uh, that uh, you're not in church often and you found occasion to be here. And I said, we're in 1 John. And you say, I thought that was the one I passed on the way into the, law, into the church. Is there a second John? Is there another one more handy? I know. See, it wasn't that good. You're wishing I wouldn't have said it now. Okay, blame the guy that said he wanted to hear it. It's not my fault. I offered to... 1 John, that with John, the Apostle John wrote the Gospel of John. You'll find Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and he also wrote the book of Revelation. He did not write the book of Revelations because that book's not in your Bible. Revelation doesn't have an S on the end. You're welcome. Okay. Now, let's get to the sermon before the, we run out of time. Uh, you know, it's funny, our culture nowadays is, is kind of whether you like it or not, it's celebrity-focused. We like to really think about and know about what's going on in the lives of well-known entertainers or performers, maybe athletes, authors. Maybe you have people in your life that you admire and you uh, enjoy, either their uh, performances or their athleticism or uh, books that they have written. And sometimes we know of these people, we've heard of them, they're well-known people, and we think, well, I wonder what it would be like to meet them. I would wonder what it would be like to meet them uh, in person. And in fact, some people go to great lengths to try and meet well-known people in person. If you are going to a concert of a, a musician you like, you can usually buy a ticket or you can upgrade the ticket to a VIP ticket, and that'll get you even closer to the stage. You can see what their sweat droplets look like. Uh, sometimes you can even pay more money and get backstage privileges to see what it looks like back behind the curtain, and occasionally, maybe if you really pay top dollar, you can be a part of a, a meet and greet where you get to spend a few minutes in a room with a thousand other people personally meeting this person that you find. But here's the funny thing, if you've had an occasion to meet somebody well-known that you've admired, uh, what's the fact? The fact is, when you meet them, you turn, it turns out they're just people. It turns out they're just regular people too. I mean, they are maybe more well-known, they maybe have uh, more wealth or influence or power, but the fact is they still have to eat every day and they still sleep at night and when they get tired, they get grumpy and when they get sick, they don't feel well. It's, they're just normal people. In fact, I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, do you ever met anybody that's really well-known? Doesn't it turn out to be kind of disappointing? Like, I wish I could go back to where I didn't know them as a normal person and they could continue to just be the sort of uh, amazing person. I don't have any exciting stories about meeting anybody famous. Well, I met one person, it wasn't exciting though, and you'll agree with me, but I met uh, David Robinson. Um, some of you don't know who David Robinson is. He used to play for the San Antonio Spurs. Um, he, he was practicing basketball at the college I was attending, and I happened to meet him as he came out the door, and I shook his hand. The only thing that was impressive, David Robinson, if you've seen him on TV, he's a tall person. Usually when you meet somebody uh, famous, uh, in person, you go, boy, he's not as tall as I thought. Yeah, David Robinson was taller. I mean, this guy, I, I mean, he shook my hand and it feels like his fingers were in, in, covered my whole forearm. The guy was one tall dude. That story has nothing to do with what we're talking about. But we say, what would it like to, be, to meet this person? Well, John kind of has the same um, idea in mind here in verses 3 through 11 of 2nd, or I should say 1st John, 1st John 2. His question that he's seeking to answer for us, what would it be like to know God? What would it be like to meet God Himself? 
And he said, well, we know God. I mean, we have the Bible, and we go to church, and, and so we know God. But uh, he's, he's talking about more than that. So even in our minds as Christians, we might say, well, I know God. I'm, I'm a Christian. I read the Bible. I know what it says. But I'm kind of interested of what it's going to be like to meet Him in person. I mean, you've thought that, haven't you, when you get to heaven? What's that going to be like? Uh, what, what will it be like to meet God in person? And that's kind of what John has in mind here. He says, I want, I want to explain to you what it's like to know God. I want, I want us to think about what is it like to know God? What is it like to know Him in person? And John is going to suggest that we can know Him as much in person now as we will the day we cross the threshold into glory. But he wants to answer this question, what is it like to know God? And I hope as we work through these verses, just for a few minutes, that we might answer that question uh, for us. So let's start with this. What is it like to know God? First suggestion. By suggestion, I mean truth. What is it like to know God? To know God is to obey like Jesus. Read again with me verses 3 and 4 of 1 John 2. By this, we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commands. Verse 4, whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. What is it like to know God? To know God is to obey like Jesus. Obey like Jesus. Now, I want us to understand the word here for know and how John uses the word know is probably a little different than how you and I think about know. We think, how do I know God? And maybe you might spend some time listing some attributes of God. God is love. God is omnipresent. God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. God is everywhere, but He's also one place. I don't know how you do that, but he pulls it off. So maybe we list some attributes of God and we say, well, I know something of God. And that's not what John is talking about here when he says to know God. What he is talking about, he says to know God is more of this word, familiarity, a closeness, connection. When he says to know God is to be familiar with who God is and to be familiar with what God is like. If I told you I knew my son, and you could say, well, what is he like? And I gave you his date of birth and social security number, you would say, well, you've given me some information, but I don't know your son any more than I did before, correct? Well, th this is what John is trying to convince us of here. To know God is not merely to be able to list off a dozen or so attributes. God is love. God is just. God is omnipresent. Uh, God is big, yet He is also close. We've described things about God, but have we given any indication that we're familiar with what God is like? Well, no, we haven't. We've just listed off some things that are true of Him. And John here wants us to think about our relationship with God and answer the question, am I familiar with God? Do I know God the way I might know another a family member, the way I might know my spouse or my parents or my children? John also wrote in chapter 15 of the Gospel of John, and we're going to be in John 15 several times this morning, so you may want to throw a bookmark in there if you'd like to follow along. But I'm going to read John 15:10, and this is what John said in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. This is Jesus talking. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Now, we need to think about this a little bit, because the way that verse reads, reads right into our, our sense of religiosity. If we obey my commandments, you'll abide in my love. See, I told you, good old-fashioned religion. Do what you're supposed to do, and God will love you more. False. Because look what it says about Jesus. I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. So did Jesus earn God's love by obeying His commandments? No, He couldn't. Why? Because the Father and Jesus, God the Son, have loved each other for all of eternity. There was no way for Jesus to earn the Father's love. He already had it. So He's not describing earned love. He's describing love expressed He's describing what it looks like to receive love and respond to love. 
So Jesus says, I have the Father's love. As a result here, I live according to that love. I live according to the manner of my Father. I live according to what I know what my, my Father is into because I'm, in fact, familiar with the Father. Is Jesus familiar with the Father? Yes, He spent, has spent all of eternity with Him. He knows what the Father is like. And so Jesus says to us, you abide in my love, and in so doing, you will know my manner. You will be familiar with my ways. The expression of, I know what Jesus likes and what He's into. Man, He loves me. That's awesome. I'm going to do His kind of stuff. What do we call that? Obeying commands. It's not obeying commands to get love. It's obeying commands because we are familiar with the one who has, in fact, loved us. The relationship between Jesus and the Father is a relationship of loving familiarity, which results in Jesus' loving obedience. And now Jesus is calling us. He says, what I want you to do is, in love, be familiar with me. Not be able to list off my attributes. Congratulations. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He's saying, I want you to know me. I want you to have relationship with me where you know my manner and my ways. And in that love and that familiarity, express your own love through obedience. Look with me down at verse 14 of John 15. You are my friends if you do what I command. Verse 15. No longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. No longer do I call you servants, I call you friends. I have made known all of my Father's business to you. Everything the Father is up to, I've made known to you. Not as a hired hand, but as a co-worker, a business partner. He's calling us into friendly friendship engaged in the family business. Not as a hired hand, but as a partner in the enterprise. He wants us as friends, as loving, familiar family to know what He's into, to know what the Father's into, to know what the Father's business is. If the Father owns a tire shop, what are you going to sell? Toasters. I mean, that's, it, makes, it makes common sense in, in the life we live. We say, if I have a business with my family and I'm engaged in a loving, familiar life with them, I'm going to do what we do because it's a loving, familiar relationship. What do we call that? We call that obedience. And it's normal. And for some reason, when we shift over to talking about God, we shift it into our minds into a religious contract where if I do what God likes, He does stuff to me I like. And that's not what Jesus is describing here. He's describing a family that loves one another mutually, and He calls us into the family business. David talked about this actually in Psalm 32. I'm going to read Psalm 32, verses 8 and 9. Interestingly, Psalm 32, verses 1 through 7, is David saying how awesome God is. Not unusual for a psalm, right? That's what he does. I mean, psalms come in a couple of different categories. My two favorites, God is awesome and kill my enemies. Those are kind of interesting to read. May their mouth be filled with gravel. That's a life verse. In this case, David in Psalm 32, 1 through 7 is saying, blessed is he who has received God's forgiveness. He says, God is awesome, not merely because he is awesome. He's saying, I have experienced God. I am familiar with what God is like. What is God like? He is forgiving. He is gracious. David, despite his best efforts, was unable to outsin God's mercy. And so David, having learned something from God because he had received the overflowing forgiveness of God, says this in verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. This is funny. David is saying, I was such a profound sinner that I have seen the depths of God's forgiveness, so I have something to teach you. It's funny, nowadays, what do we say? We want people to teach us who have never sinned before. And David says, I hit home runs of sin so I can show you the depths of forgiveness some people have never seen. Isn't that interesting? I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. 
When you have sinned, work really hard to earn God's favor so He'll like you better. Okay, so you're following along with me. It's not what it says. Verse 9 says this, Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. What does he say? You think a relationship with God is God putting a bridle in your mouth and dragging you to places where you do not want to go. And David is saying the same thing Jesus is saying. No, I want you to know this God to such a degree that you would not go anywhere else with, with or without a bridle. You pull the bridle out of our mouth and we have the opportunity to wander away and one who has received the forgiveness like David has would say, where else would I go? What's the difference between a mule that wanders off without a bridle and one that doesn't wander off because he has a bridle? Nothing. Neither one of them enjoys the master. David is saying, having received God's grace, you can take the bridle out. I will never leave this guy's side. And this is what Jesus is calling us to. And in John chapter 15, he's saying, I want you to join in with the family business because God has called you into it, not because uh, you, have, uh, you want to somehow earn God's favor, but because there's no other place that has any better options than being in God's presence. Once we're familiar with what God is like, the fact is there is nowhere else we would rather be. Turning back to the Gospel of John, in John 14, verses 8, the disciple Philip says, Lord, talking to Jesus, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So Jesus is here saying, in relationship with us, in relationship with the disciples, how do we know, how do we know the Father? We look at what Jesus is like. Jesus makes known to us the Father himself. If you know Jesus, you know the Father. I want us to, to note one thing that Jesus did not say. Jesus did not say, you know what, if you know me, you know all the things that the Father approves of, and you know all the things the Father does not approve of. You notice he didn't say that? Isn't it interesting that Jesus didn't come at them with a moral argument, he came at them with a family argument? He didn't come to Philip and say, Philip, uh, listen buddy, I know you want to see the Father. Here's the thing, you've seen me, you know what the Father approves of what good people do. You know what the Father disapproves of, what naughty people do. Try to stay on the good side and maybe the Father will let you behind the curtain a little bit. He doesn't say that. He says, Philip, dude, we're bros. How can you say that? How can you say you want to know the Father? The Father knows you and He, he, he wants you to know Him through me. What have we been doing, Phil? I don't know how that translates in Aramaic, but I'm sure that's how that conversation went down. Jesus is saying, we've missed the point. If we think obedience to the Father is merely trying to figure out the laundry list of what God is into and what He's not into. Jesus, His mind is blowing. Philip, know the Father so that in any given situation, in any given moment, in any given relationship, you say, I know what God would do here. I know what God's manner is in this kind of a situation. I know what God is like when approaching this kind of a relationship. We are seeking to be familiar with God so we take God's ways into our lives, God's approach. And God's approach is an approach of love. It's a, an approach of grace. And God's manner is truthful and loving. What is it like to know God? It's to obey like Jesus, but not merely a list of do's and don'ts. It is a manner of life consistent with one we have known and one we have loved. It's not merely loving deeds, it's a loving life. It's not merely checking off the list, I did something loving on Monday to my wife, so now I get the week off. It's not merely checking off the list of making sure I do more stuff good than I do naughty and hope they balance out and I get into heaven. 
it is becoming familiar and accustomed to this one who is God, who is near, and living my life consistent with the familiar ways of our Father. What is it like to know God? It is to obey like Jesus, not just for a moment, but for a walk. And that's the next point, verses 5 through 6 of 1 John 2, if you want to turn back over there. Keep your finger in 1 John, or John 15. What is it like to know God? Number one, it's to obey like Jesus, familiar with God's ways. And number two, it's to walk like Jesus. Let me read again verses 5 and 6 of 1 John chapter 2. Whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Whoever abides in him, whoever knows God, ought to walk in the way that Jesus walked. Now, I want us to understand these three ways that we uh, understand what it's like to know God are not three categories and we can do one or the other. They, they're all involved with one another. We obey like Jesus and we walk like Jesus. How do we walk? In obedience. How do we obey? While walking. So you don't get one without the other. They are very related and connected with one another. I don't want to give the third one away because I want to keep you excited for it. Stoked? All right. Stay stoked. All right. He says this, He whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God is perfected. You see that in verse 5 of John, 1 John chapter 2? Whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. Now the word there, perfected, it's a good translation. I have no problem with it being perfected, but it's a little different than our word perfect. When we think of the word perfect, we, th- we think of something that is flawless. There's a, a, an idea of that in the word that is translated perfected here, but also primarily what it means is completed. So it's not merely flawless, it's love that is finished. It is love that goes to the full extent that it is supposed to go. So what he's saying here is to walk and keep Uh, the Word of God, is to allow the love of God to be completed in our life. That is, finished. Here to there. When are we finished doing the purposes of God? When's retirement for the Christian? It's called your funeral. We'll celebrate your retirement with you. It'll be a better day for you than for us. But to be perfected means for the love of God in us to do all of its work it's called to do uh, from here to there, from the moment we are in Christ to the moment we are with Christ. Here to there, loving. And how does God define what that means? John, again, back in John 15, verse 13, Jesus says this, Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. What is the definition of love for Christ? What is the definition of what it means to love for God Himself? To give up your life for those around you, to lay down your life. That's the definition of love. The definition of love is to lay down my life as I walk from here to there. That is to give up what I might seek for my life for the people around me and for, the, and for God who I am familiar with. A life of loving God and those around me is a life of sacrifice from here to there. That's what love is for Christ. That's what love is defined by for Christ. It's not merely to sacrifice, it's to sacrifice my life. That would be everything. That would be be the whole deal. To lay down my life is the definition of of love for Christ. To walk like Jesus is to walk from here to there of, of a life of, of the life of the love of Christ flowing out of me, which means a life of sacrifice flowing out of me. The Father had this really great plan. He said, I want to invade this uh, destroyed and busted world with my love, and so I'm going to send Christ, uh, God the Son, to be born of a woman, born Jesus, to invade the world with my kind of love. What kind of love does God invade the world with? Sacrifice, start to finish. We're not going to turn there, you can jot it down, you've read it before, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Uh, the, the proper description of the invasion of God's love into the world is complete. Total, 
absolute 100% humiliation. From the absolute highest point in all of the created order to the absolute lowest point. God's love is invading this world uh, to express God's loving sacrifice to us on purpose through Christ. And what God is saying in John, uh, I should say 1 John 2 verse 5, is I want to take this love, which began with Christ's humiliation, and I want it to be finished, completed in us. Okay, this is bizarre. Was God's love finished on the cross? No. No. Wasn't done yet. Was God's love finished at the resurrection? Not done yet. God's love will be completed through us. He is going to complete the act of His sacrificial love, in fact, through all of those who have known Him through the work of Christ Himself. Everything's not done yet. I don't know if you noticed, the world's not fixed yet. The world is still broken. There is still lots of pain and hurt and destruction. And, and the fact that we have a funeral on Thursday should illuminate us to the fact that the world is not fixed yet. So His love has not yet been completed yet, and He saw fit to complete His expression of love through us. He said, I want you to be a part of the family business. What business are you in? Loving others. Great. Valentine's Day every day. He said, well, our understanding of love is a little different. It's sacrifice start to finish. And then we start getting, well, okay, sacrifice, but then we get paid off, right? Is, like if we bless others, we get blessed? No, that's karma, close. <laughs> so what is walking? What does it mean if I know God to walk like Jesus? Walking is abiding in Christ that His kind of love would flow from us everywhere we go and with everywhere we, everyone we meet. Abiding in Christ, walking like Christ because we are familiar with the Father, familiar with the family business, is us uh, taking Christ's kind of love everywhere we go with everyone we meet. I only say that because that's what He did. There was not a moment on this earth that He did not express His love and the Father's love perfectly sacrificially, every moment of every day. So, how can we think about this? Uh, what is my agenda, if you might think of it this way? If you, if you wouldn't, bear with me. So, what is my agenda? A couple of areas, four areas where you might have an agenda in your life. Uh, you may be married, so you have an agenda in your marriage. Of course you do. There's no problem. Nobody, don't have to feel guilty yet. That's coming in a minute. You want a happy marriage. I mean, nobody, nobody wants a miserable marriage. There are those, but nobody wants it. I have an agenda. I want a happy marriage. Uh, maybe you want a marriage that has a good reputation. People would look at your marriage and say, well, that's what marriage ought to be like. Maybe you have an agenda with your children. You would like children who are well-behaved. You like children who are respectable. Children who give you a good reputation, right? These are, that's an agenda we might have. Maybe you have an agenda. You want your children to be successful. If your children are successful, that somehow speaks to our parenting. What's my agenda at work? Maybe success, that's uh, uh, an agenda we might have. Maybe uh, financial gain, maybe influence, maybe significance is gained by success at work. I don't know. We might have an agenda where we work. Or how about where we serve? Maybe you volunteer in the community, or perhaps you have ministry you do here in this church or in other ministries in the valley. What is our agenda? even as we volunteer or serve the Lord with our time. And what an agenda describes for us is what are the outcomes I want? What are the goals I have for my marriage and my parenting? I want my marriage to be happy and my kids to be successful and my work to be amazing and, and inspiring day in and day out. That's why they call it work, right? I want my service to be significant and important and impactful. These are all outcomes and these are all goals and none of these things are wrong, so don't, don't hear me wrong, I'm not saying any of those things are wrong, but none of those things are an expression of walking in the love of Christ. Because what the love of Christ does, it's take our agenda, rewires it to say, how do I, in each of the categories in my life, offer sacrificial love? What does my marriage look like if my only agenda is to die every day for my spouse? 
And I know what some of you are thinking. Don't look around. Some of you think, you have no idea what my spouse is like. That would be a nightmare. And unfortunately, he didn't give us a caveat on this one. What would it look like in my parenting to say, my job today is to die to my own desires and serve my children? What would my work look like if my goal was to understand the family business, the business of my father, which is in every situation, in every relationship, to be the one who dives to the bottom first, who sacrifices first, who gives up first? What would my ministry look like if it was an outflow of sacrificial love and not as a desire to either make up for past misdeeds or seek religious significance? And what Jesus says when He says, when you know the Father, you walk like me, it's to encounter every sphere of your life and say, how do I die here? How do I die here? To obey is to know the Father and to know what He's into, and to walk is to approach every category of my life and say, I want to live like my Father lives, which is sacrificially and lovingly. And finally, the last category we're going to talk about here. How do we do that? To know the Father is to love like Jesus. Did you get the three points? Maybe you didn't. What's it like to know God? Obey like Jesus, walk like Jesus, love like Jesus. He says this over in 2 John verse 7, if you want to turn back there. I keep saying 2 John. It's 1 John chapter 2. It's very challenging. This is what he said. I'm going to read verses 7 through 11 again just to remind us. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in Him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness, does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. He says, I'm not giving you a new commandment. In fact, this idea of loving one another is not a new idea. All the way back to Deuteronomy, the Bible teaches us, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But he's saying that it is new in the sense that Christ has come. The cross has happened, the resurrection has happened, Jesus is raised from the dead, and the Holy Spirit is now here, and so now we approach loving one another, empowered by the power of God's Spirit Himself. And so He calls us to a new commandment, that is, do what I've always said for you to do, but now you can do it by the power of Christ in you. Again, back to John 15, verse 12, this is what He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. How are we supposed to love one another? You can say it. The way Jesus did. He said, I want you to love each other Jesus-y. Not my word, an uh, uh, author's word I, I'm borrowing from. I don't want you to think it was my idea. I want you to love each other Jesus-y. How does Jesus love? Flip back to chapter 14, verse 12. How are we supposed to love Jesus sacrificially the way He does? Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus says, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Okay, it's getting worse, not better. In fact, He will do greater works than these because I am going to the Father. What? I'm sorry, what? I want you to love Jesus, see? No, 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 check that. I want you to do it more. I want you to love more than Jesus would. How in the world are we supposed to do that? I can't love like Jesus for 10 minutes in the morning. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do because the Father will be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Whoever believes in me will do the works I do, and whoever does these things will be empowered by God. In fact, he says this in verse 15, I will ask the Father and he will give you another, a helper to be with you, the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is going to say it basically this way. I want you to love even more than I do, and the way that you're going to do that is the Holy Spirit is going to indwell you, and you can now do the works that I do even better. You will do greater things than these by the power of the Spirit. 
And he is calling us to love one another the way he would by the power of the Holy Spirit. What is it like to know God? To love one another by the power of the Holy Spirit. When do we do that? Start to finish. Why do we do that? Because we're familiar with God and He has called us to know Him and love Him. Because we love this guy. God says, this is what I'm like. And we say, man, that's awesome. I want to be like that. He said, no problem. I'll give you the Spirit so you can do it like me. This is what the Bible says about the fruit of the Spirit. You don't have to turn to Galatians 5. That's where it is. Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is, you're familiar with them, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Who's got two out of those? Got two? No, I'm good at one and a half. If nobody's around. As soon as there's people in the room, I'm not good at any of them. And that's the point. Notice the fruit of the Spirit here can only be exercised with other people. One more point. They can only be exercised with messed up people. Have you, do you see that? He calls us to be patient. That is not necessary if you're not surrounded by people who require patience. The assumption here is you will be required to have the fruit of the Spirit because the people around you require it. He wants you to love the people around you, not because they are lovable, because they are the opposite. This is what we can know about the body of Christ. We're to love each other, and it's so hard to love us, it requires the eternal God existing in us to make that happen. Joy there is also a form of the word grace, charis, and so he's saying joy that is, I am joyful with you, I am gracious to you, even though you don't deserve it. Peace here is not a lack of anxiety, it's an overlooking of the conflict that exists between us. Patience, we talked about, kindness, not because other people are kind to us. If these things were automatic, they would not be commanded. Notice the Bible never tells you to breathe. You're going to do it on your own. He's commanding us here by the power of the Spirit to be kind because otherwise we would not. The assumption of the fruit of the Spirit is we're surrounded by people who do not deserve the fruit of the Spirit from us. Spoiler alert, you're the same way for them. So we're square. What is it like to know God? It's to have love for brothers and sisters that can only be explained by the power of the eternal God living in us. If the, the love that exists between us can be explained by the same way as the Elks Lodge or your sewing circle, do they do that still? That's old school right there. You're welcome. Your golfing buddies, everybody's doing that. The, he's saying, how do I love like Jesus? It's when the love that exists between us can only be explained by the supernatural work of the indwelling eternal God in us. Where people say, why are you so patient? That guy is a jerk. Holy Spirit, not me. It's a miracle of God. I haven't killed that guy. What is it like to know God? It's when our our relationships with one another are defined by the spiritual power of Christ allowing us to love one another. It's not defined by our life being blessed. It's not defined by our bragamonies. A bragamony is similar to a testimony, but it's a testimony you tell not to say how God is, but how you are. Thank the Lord I was able to overcome that besetting sin. I think you're thinking you. Thank the Lord I am so amazing this church is lucky to have me. Yes, we are. <laughs> we, are not, we don't know God because we have all the answers. We read the hard parts of the Bible. There's a guy in the Bible, Book of Judges, he cuts up his concubine into 12 pieces and mails her around the country. And we say we know God because somehow we've come up with a comfortable answer for that. No, there's no comfortable answer for that. That story is supposed to mess you up. We say we know God because we have all the answers. We know God because we have a good reputation, a fancy marriage, our kids are whatever. 
And the Bible says, no, no, no. You know God because the love between the brothers and sisters in the body of Christ can only be explained by the supernatural power of the, of the Holy Spirit living in us. Let me read a passage from Hebrews chapter 11 to explain what the best life now looks like. I'm not making fun of Joel Osteen. I'm criticizing. And I know I've offended some of you, perhaps. Here's the description of our best life now, faithfulness to God. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. So we're looking for some kind of blessing or some kind of life because we know God. There it is. Here is the power of God. He is saying, love your brothers and sisters so much by the power of the Holy Spirit that that would describe you for your brother and sister, and they don't deserve it. But would you be destitute for one in this room? Would you be uh, go around in sackcloth for one in this room? But we want to define our Christian life by how blessed we are, how uh, fancy our testimony is, how we have all the right answers, and how our reputation is sterling and whatever. But here's the problem with that. I'm going to close with this. One social commentator put it this way. No matter how good you are at something, there's always about a million people better at it than you. So maybe you've been faithful to God and your life is blessed. And so you hang in your hat on this blessed life, but then you, you meet this other guy. He's not half as faithful as you. And God has seen fit to bless that dude's socks off. Nothing is so irritating as that. What do you do with that? Or I've got a good reputation, and this guy, this Yahoo I know, I know what he's into, and he's got a better reputation. If I'm seeking my relationship with God to be blessed, somewhere in His blessed more, if I'm seeking a relationship with God to be spiritually important, maybe I say, hey, guess what? I led someone to the Lord this week. You're going to meet some guy who led 10 people to the Lord. He beats you. Come at me, bro, he says. You spent your life reading the Bible, and so you've got some of the answers to the, the, the pointy questions that are difficult to answer, and then you meet this guy, and he's memorizing books of the Bible. And then you meet the next guy, and he's got the New Testament memorized. That's frustrating. I thought I had it nailed. If a guy can beat me in that, then I must not be very close to God because just a human has already bested me. So what is it like to know God? Is it seeking blessing? Is it seeking a fancy testimony? Is it getting all the right answers, the right reputation? No, what is it? To love your brothers and sisters. Let me put it to you this way. What is the one thing that every single Christian can do, regardless of your sin history, regardless of your shame history, regardless of your spiritual maturity, regardless of how much Bible you know, or regardless of your spiritual heritage? What's the one thing every single Christian can do, no questions asked? You can love the person next to you to the point of death. And when you do that, it is not you doing it. It is the power of the Holy Spirit moving in you. It is supernatural. It is miraculous, and it brings glory to God. And he says, welcome to the family business. That is what we're into. I want us to understand this doesn't mean be friendly with your buddies. We all can be friendly with our friends. Spirit-empowered, miraculous love where God helps you finally get over yourself and that person you don't want to talk to. Who's that one person you have no respect for? And a name popped in your head. Don't, don't deny it. You know it. If it's me, it's fine. There's a whole club. You got t-shirts. You don't respect them. You don't like them for valid reasons. You've got a surly personality. They've done something wrong to you. They're unethical. The unpardonable sin in modern evangelicalism. They've got a past that you know about and they haven't told anybody about. You don't respect them. They've got a history. Nothing is more frustrating, as one author said, is than people who sin differently than you. And Jesus says, are you in my business? 
Are you in the family business? Because we love those kind of people to the cross. We don't exclude them. We give them the cold shoulder. We don't avoid them. Our business is to turn a profit in sacrificing ourselves to them, for them, and on their behalf. What if they don't respond? He says, oh, oh, oh they won't. You missed the point. Your point is to sacrifice and die. We want to love, but we want a beach kind of love. Do you know what a beach kind of love is? Many of us grew up in Oregon or maybe California, or there might be some outsiders here. Congratulations, you found the promised land. <laughs> beach kind of love is that high school, maybe middle school, that first time you walk down a beach, nothing big, you just walk down a beach with a little lady or that handsome young man. Heart's just going nuts. How are you? <laughs> Play it cool, man. Got sweat circles the entire, right. He said, man, that is amazing. Why is that amazing? Because they don't have a clue who you are. That's why that's amazing. They don't know you. We want that kind of love. It's exciting and it's, it's awesome. And, and two people who don't even have a clue who each other are. Jesus is not talking about a beach love. Jesus is talking about spirit-empowered, leave heaven to hang out with sinners, finding people passed out, drunk in the alley. He knows what you're into. He loves you anyway. That's the kind of love the family business is about. Leave heaven to find people passed out, drunk in the alley, and say, man, you're awesome. He loves us anyway. And what he wants us to do is to, to sit back and take in all that love and all that grace that he's pouring out on, on us, and the first opportunity we get, dump it on someone else. That's what it's like to know God. We're waiting for a mystical experience or something, I don't know what we wait for, a blessing in our life or something. And Jesus said, it's very simple. Here's what the family business is into. I'm going to dump love on you, and you can never exhaust it. Every time you meet somebody, I want, to take, I want you to take that and dump it on them. And guess what? It's better if they don't deserve it. And we say, well, what if I run out? He says, we never run out. That's what's cool about this business. It's a loss leader. I never run out. Take all of the love that he's dumped on you and dump it on someone else. It's crazy. And that's what it's like to know God. It's amazing. Some of you have had it happen, have you? Somebody showed you love, you said, what is this about? So that, that's what it's like to know God. When do you get to do that? When, how, how mature do you have to be? Guess what? You're there. Anybody can do this. Everybody should. 